on Textbooked. Welcome back to Untextbooked. This is a history podcast for our future that gives young people like us a voice and agency in our education. I'm your host, Gabe Hostin. And I'm one of the founding producers, Victor Yi. Normally, our episodes take history out of the textbook, but in this special bonus episode, we're doing something different. We're reading straight from the textbook? Absolutely not. We are taking Untextbooked out of the recording studio, otherwise known as our dorm rooms. Check team. Check, 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 check. Hey, beautiful out here. I mean, I'm not going to miss out on an opportunity like this. That's right. Victor and I had the amazing opportunity to head to sunny San Diego, California. Welcome to San Diego. We attended a conference where all the biggest faces in education gathered, the ASU GSV Summit. Surrounded by fellow innovators and disruptors, I was inspired to connect with others who want to make sure every young person feels engaged in our learning. In the history of our nation, every kind of turning point in our history revolved around the ability to be educated. And oftentimes, young people are seen as the audience of the civic space, the, um, the target of the civic space. Much less are they seen as the participant. Listen to your students. They're the most important people that you're dealing with every day. They have ideas, feelings, hopes, dreams, and they want to talk about those too. We truly had an incredible time. We talked to some of the most innovative edtech leaders, teachers, and social entrepreneurs to discuss how we can collaboratively write a new chapter. We were meeting so many incredible people at the summit that we decided, hey, we can't keep this all to ourselves. We need to make an untextbooked episode. So we took out our microphones, found quiet spots on the campus, and started doing what we do best, ask questions. First, Victor talks to someone who puts education in the context of civic engagement and living in a democracy. It's such a pleasure to meet you, Stephen. Oh, it's great to meet you. How serendipitous. It really is, especially on this nice day. We were so lucky to meet at the conference, and I was able to find a sunny spot outside to record right next to the harbor, with calm ocean waves creeping on shore and a myriad of seafood restaurants filled with conference attendees. Just finding a nice resting spot under the shade. First of all, how many times do you meet a fellow violinist as you're just strolling around a conference? <laughs> that really is true. I mean, it's a bow tie that kind of like... Yeah, that's right. My name is Steve Hernandez. I'm an attorney by trade. And what I do is that I run an agency of the Connecticut General Assembly that focuses on women, children, seniors, equity, and opportunity. He's passionate about how a state government is one of many democracies that compose our country. It's a democracy among democracies right. uh, in this federation, right? And how we run our democracy is really important to me, and how we engage in it is also important. That's incredible, and I know that um, that kind of strikes really closely to at least our founding mission, which was founded in the middle of 2020, where for the first time I was able to vote in an election, um, and I was able to participate in a lot of the civic turnouts, and as well as a in, in between the BLM protests and also just the civic moments that are happening in our history. I was wondering like, what you think about youth agency when you are within your work 
promoting the ability for young people to be able to speak their voices and speak their truth as well. Well, a couple of things. Firstly, I'm so enthralled by when it was that you were sparked, your interest in civics was sparked. Oftentimes what we return to is how do we come together to build something better than we have. That's right. And that is at the core, I think, of democracy and civic engagement. The first civic space that children experience is really their families and their community. Very true. And I was very blessed to have a huge extended family. So talk about community and civics and using your voice and sometimes having to you know, speak above the din because I come from a very Latin family that everyone talks over each other, right? Uh, and, and then that second space, of course, is your educational environment, your schools. Oftentimes, young people are seen as the audience of the civic space, the, um, the target of the civic space. Much less are they seen as the participant, someone that actually has value in that civic space other than just absorption. And to me, what's key really when you engage young people is that they understand that they have value. When young people learn to lead, they know where to go to lead. And that's a critical thing. Now, why make a decision to lead? Because we need it. We need leaders. We need young people to decide that they want to be part of building that connective tissue that really binds us together, not only to cohabitate, but also to co-create, which is so incredibly important in our survival as a species, as a democracy, and just as fun people. For students across the country, many of them who sometimes get the glimpse to be able to speak with government officials, sometimes they may see them on camera or on video or on media. I wonder what advice that you have for young people that want to be able to speak with government officials or be able to work alongside officials that are representing constituents to be able to work for a better future. I'll tell you one thing that one thing that's important is to humanize and personalize the the person, the, the human being that is choosing to lead on behalf of a community. That human being was a child. That human being uh, may be a parent, may not. That human being lives in community. That human being has their own story, just like you do, right? And what's powerful is that I think what happens when we see leaders on a pulpit or we see leaders in the public space, we forget that they are human beings first, just like you and me. They are accessible, they cry, they have fears, they have joys, just like you and I do. That's you. And there's nothing between you and that person other uh, that is different other than the decision to lead. Once you make the decision to lead, you have joined that uh, siblinghood of leadership. I find that so inspiring to hear that what you valued leadership as a decision to join a group of others that are all bounded by the same goal of hoping to inspire others and make a better community is truly, truly impactful. That's incredible. Thank you so much for everything, Stephen, and I appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Cool, cool. So, I mean, David, you know, I met you last night, but I feel like I was probably doing most of the talking. I mean, dude, tell me about yourself, David. Anywhere there's an opportunity to make things better, I want to be there and make it happen. We discovered we both share a few common connections. You know, I went to high school in the Bronx. Dave is based in New York City. What brought you to this uh, endeavor? Like, hey, this needs to happen. Like, what sparked that? And I come from a family. Uh, my, my mom is from Haiti. Um, Yo, ça passe. Ma poule. Yeah, bro. Yeah. I'm from, you know, I'm Haitian as well. I didn't know so, that you were yeah, Haitian. I should have yeah. caught from your last name. Yeah, Hostine. Like, yeah. David Adams is the CEO of Urban Assembly. 
an education nonprofit dedicated to improving public education. They design high-quality schools in New York City and scale those solutions around the country. This, this idea that education gives us flexibility and really refines our ability to solve problems. And, and as a community, we know that uh, we always aspired for education, right? This is one thing that I think um, in the history of our nation that, that was really clear. Every kind of turning point in our history revolved around the ability to be educated. So yes. during Reconstruction, um, the Freedmen Schools, uh, when you're looking at Civil Rights Era, um, when you're looking at desegregation in the North, right? This idea of how do we shape people? Yes. And that's education, right? And that's why these battles for our countries, of our, our souls of our country, was always revolved around how we educate, especially Black people. Yes, 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 yes. We've come a long way, and we still have a ways to go to really get everyone educated to shape young people um, the way that optimizes the soul of this country, mm. I guess you could say. We got reading, got science, math, right? And we really got people. <laughs> right. And those are parts of the people, but the pe person matters. And I, I think we've missed the boat on that a little bit. Continuing focus on the whole person of a student, right? That like, not just like a brain floating in this body who cares about other things, distracting them from learning. It, it is a whole person. And the responsibility of schools and the school system is to bring this whole person to society ready to contribute. Mm, I hear that. I hear that very much. So like school, like, of course, people might say, like, school is for learning these subjects of math and science, et cetera. People will say, like, well, I don't have time to teach values. I don't have time to teach social emotional skills. You're always teaching values. So what values are you teaching? You're always impacting social emotional development. The question is how and what intention, right? We need to be intentional because schools are where we create society and recreate society. And again, that's why all these pivotal movements in our history are so grounded in schools, right? Brown versus Board of Education, they didn't decide it and say, like, it's a lower quality education in segregated schools, although it was. They said it was violating the 14th Amendment that we are equal citizens, right? in this country, and segregation was undermining that, right? Um, it was telling us that we were less than. And maybe it had impact on academic achievement, I don't know, right? Like, I wasn't tracking it. But that's not why it was decided. It was decided because it was undermining our constitutional right as Black people to be part of this nation. And that's why schools matter. 100%. 100%. Schools and learning have always played a part in democracy. For many people, a high school degree can be a ticket to a lifetime of civic engagement. But in this country, there are about 2 million people who have dropped out of high school in just one year. David's goal is for every student who enters his school's doors to leave with a degree. Right now, that figure is at 91.4%. I pressed him about the stories behind the 8.6% who dropped out. You said the urban center schools like ninety one point four percent. Ninety one percent, yeah. Phenomenal. Thank by you. the way, Thank phenomenal. You. And that's our principals, right? Our programs. So shout out to my principals for doing good work, right? Yeah. But you know, I feel like it's always important to also think like, what's happening to that eight point six percent? It's a great question. What are their lives like? What's not the, good? Not know? good. I mean, not good. I mean, making sure that you get out of high school with the credential uh, is is the foundation to being able to kind of like contribute your skills to society, right? We know the stats on high school dropouts are not strong, 
We know the stats on folks who struggle to find work, who are unemployed or, or intermittently employed. But I will tell you that we are continuing to solve for making sure that all of our schools are graduating all of our kids. And we can do that. I mean, one of our schools had a 99% graduation rate last year, right? We can, wow. we, can, we can solve the problem. I'm a very <laughs> strong believer that there's a solution to every problem. There's a solution to every problem. And maybe it's really expensive, or maybe uh, it would require 15 years, or, or maybe we'd have to mobilize, you know, masses. But there is a solution. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? One thing I would say is we don't necessarily have to solve every problem of the country to improve our graduation rates. Mm. It does put a lot of pressure on educators. It does put a lot of pressure on principals to really think through solutions that are within our locus of control to be successful at, right? But sometimes I think we ring again, like, well, look at all these things that are contributing to these constraints. And if we don't solve this, we can't improve. And it's not true bringing them back to school and bringing them back to teachers who care about them and bringing them back to folks who want them to be successful. So I'm with you uh, that 8%. I care about those folks. I care about our kids. Um, And I care about figuring out how to get from 91 to 99 and from 99 to 100. And I don't know how to get beyond 100, but we could if we, if we work hard enough, I guess. <laughs> Your job isn't to, like, fix redlining or whatever. Yeah. That's other people's jobs. And we have people working on that, thankfully. Yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of power we have in the school system and the space you're working in. I really believe in that because I think sometimes educators can feel overwhelmed by the magnitude of the challenge to make sure our students are successful. Um, And I think we just got to narrow the problem set to how do I ensure this young person in front of me, and sometimes not in front of me, I got to sometimes figure out how to get them into the building, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. How do I ensure they have what they need to succeed? That's what we we care about. Um, And all these things are true. I mean, you have temporary housing, you have uh, family structures that are not consistent, you have violence in the community, uh, you have institutional segregation and, and, and the implications of that in terms of policing and, and the way that we see ourselves. And, and yet, we have been successful and we need to be successful. And, and that's, that's the bottom line, right? There's a lot to be optimistic about and yes. we're making progress we're every making day. Progress. You know? And that's what to focus on. That's what to focus that's on. That's what to focus on. We're making progress. We're making progress. Numbers don't lie. Next up, I talked to a teacher I wished I had in high school. So my name is Esther Wojcicki, and I'm the founder of the Palo Alto High School Journalism Program, which is today the largest one in the United States. But first, we had to make sure we were recording. We created our own little sitting area, pulling chairs to form an intimate conversation right in the corner where there were a few people, as she is joking about our impromptu mic setup. You you wanted me to hold like... My exercise routine, every morning, I hold a 20-pound ball, so your phone will be just fine. <laughs> Seriously, this She is also the like, co-founder of The Track Dad, a journalist and author of several books on parenting. She's inspired thousands of students, the likes of Steve Jobs, and honestly, me. I started out by asking her how she runs the Palo Alto High School journalism program. We have between seven and 800 students. And um, I'm teaching, have been teaching students how to write about the real world for decades. And 
uh, turns out they really like writing about the real world and they don't like writing five paragraph essays about books that they actually never read. So, <laughs> so I think the biggest challenge that students face is making the content that they're studying relevant to the real world. A lot of kids are studying things and they're just like, why am I studying this? I have no idea. The teacher doesn't tell us. I can't figure it out. And like, why should I learn it? And the answer is, well, if you don't learn it, you're going to get an F and that won't be a very good situation. So there needs to be more relevance to the curriculum so that kids actually understand why they're learning it and make use of it. So I teach writing that is actually related to the real world. You know, so you're writing either news stories or reviews of products or reviews of restaurants or whatever, opinion pieces about what's going on in the world that you, you know, most teenagers don't think their opinion counts. And I was like, are you kidding? It counts a heck of a lot. You know, you guys are going to be the ones taking over the world. So stop thinking it doesn't matter. I wonder what your thoughts are on student-centered learning. I know that a lot of teachers may be not not as used to it maybe perhaps from just the teaching side. And also um, I feel like when I'm speaking to a lot of educators, they're not sure how to implement student-centered learning. Like what does that look like on your behalf when you're kind of demonstrating it in your own classrooms? So student-centered learning, I give kids an opportunity to actually even teach with me or instead of me, in place of me. They look up a lot of the content themselves, they decide what they think is interesting or important about it, and then I give them that opportunity to lead. As a matter of fact, in the advanced journalism program, they did it all, and I just like sat there, and every now and then they would ask me to come in and give a talk about this or that. But, you know, I wanted them to practice the leadership skills. I mean, I don't have to practice anymore. I've been doing it for a long time. <laughs> but they don't have a lot of chance to practice, so why not practice now? And why not come up with the topics that are relevant to you? And if they make a mistake, well, what the heck? They can just do it again tomorrow. Kids are naturally curious, and they're naturally wanting to ask questions. And what happens is that they, they're made to feel like they're not informed or stupid or like, don't tell me you're asking that question. We covered it last week. Why are you doing that? And I was like, no question is stupid. You know, if they didn't get it last week, well, maybe they'll get it this week. They should be able to ask all the questions they want to ask. The reason why I started this podcast was because I was sitting in history class and I was asking my teacher about the French Revolution and how maybe we can connect it to new world ideas in which young people from maybe war-torn countries or poverty-stricken countries don't have the voice and privilege that we do to be learning. And how can we kind of look at ways in which we can connect the mistakes from the past? Because history is all about patterns and storytelling. And my teacher just completely shut me down and told me, this is something that you will never you know, comprehend right now. So this is something that you should worry about. That's a really terrible answer. I'm sorry you had to suffer through that because honestly, it all matters. All that impacts the world today. And you as a child should not be told, well, you'll learn about it later. I mean, what's, what's the matter with right now? I would like all teachers, you know, to realize that the questions kids ask are really important. And actually it would be easier on the teacher that make their life so much easier if kids actually did a little research on their own and then brought that research to class and worked with the other kids on that. By the way, did you know that and whatever they discovered? And I don't think enough of that happens. Yeah, and I wonder, Esther, we're currently at the ASU GSV uh, Summit. And I know, I, at least for me, when I'm digging through the lists of people that are speaking at different panels and 
I'm lucky that um, we also have a panel tomorrow. Um, I'm probably the youngest person that is here. I think the next youngest person is out of college or potentially years into their career. Do you have any thoughts about how we are kind of assembling together in a convening where young people maybe are not present enough to share their perspectives at all? You know what? If I were the conference organizers, I would invite more young people and their ideas because their ideas matter. They're the target audience. You know, they're the consumers. I mean, if we're trying to test toothpaste, we test out it on the consumer. Here we're talking about a whole program, products, and there's no consumers. Where are the consumers? They're not here. <laughs> Listen to your students. They're the most important people that you're dealing with every day. They have ideas, feelings, hopes, dreams, and they want to talk about those too. Thank you so much, Esther, for all your time. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Our next guest, Greg Baer, takes learning out of the classroom, creating neighborhoods that encourage everyone to learn. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I'm a Western Pennsylvania kid. That's important for a number of reasons in my own story. So born and raised in Pittsburgh. Mr. Rogers, legendary PBS kids show host, is a huge inspiration for him. They're both from Western Pennsylvania. So neighbors? Basically. Greg is the founder and co-chair of Remake Learning. He's also the executive director of the Grable Foundation. Plus, he co-authored the book, When You Wonder, You're Learning. Mr. Rogers' enduring lessons for raising creative, curious, caring kids. We started the conversation talking about how Remake Learning creates whole learning ecosystems that go well beyond the school. Today, Remake Learning is a network of more than 600 schools, museums, libraries, early learning centers, campuses of higher education, creative industries that together, across the landscape of Western Pennsylvania and Northern West Virginia, are thinking about what is relevant, what is engaging, what is equitable, as we think about the learning experiences that we want for our young people in and out of school, early childhood through higher ed. And then how are we supporting the grown-ups in their lives, their teachers, their mentors, their counselors and others to support the sort of learning experiences that we know from the learning sciences kids need and deserve. Mm -hmm. It's that work, Gabe, that led me deep into the field of the learning sciences. And in learning more about what we're learning about learning itself, about what works. These smart learning scientists' papers and journal articles and the like were increasingly reading like scripts from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Now, why is that important? Mr. Rogers, icon of American children's television, whose work appeared from, you know, 40 years on oh, PBS. Yes, Mr. Stations Rogers, he was one of your, uh, your role models, he's right? He's one of my role models. Yes. And he's a Western Pennsylvania kid himself. He's from Pittsburgh, right? So wow. there's, it goes back to that hometownness of Fred Rogers. Mm-hmm. And I began to appreciate that Fred, in fact, we can think about Fred differently, not just as that character, that personality, that host on our television program that we got, you know, that we, in whose living room and, and other places we got to go with Fred. Like you have that emotional connection with Fred, right? But Fred was also, in retrospect, an incredible learning scientist. We didn't use that phrase 40, 50 years ago, but he was a learning scientist who learned from the scientists of his day 
and and really understood what it is that we need to do to create atmospheres of learning for young people and the adults in their lives. That's that's amazing. I know that uh, Fred Rogers was one of your role models. A quote that he said, he said that often when you think you're at the end of something, you're at the beginning of something else, yes. right? And I know that you said, that's exactly where we find ourselves now. Yeah. You know, what something else will look like is largely up to us. So what are you doing to pave our path to that future? And also I'm curious about to enable these kids that, and to enable equity and to enable just to uplift in that way, what do these kids need to flourish? Yeah. So big when, question. What, it is a big question. <laughs> As we're in the height of the pandemic still, through Remake Learning, we convened both a regional and statewide panel in Pennsylvania, involving nearly a thousand educators, administrators, and others in asking the very question about, we find ourselves at a very different moment. It's that Fred Rogers quotation, and, and this is the beginning of something, what else, right? There are things that are classic in learning that'll always be true, like the role of deep and caring relationships. Mm -hmm. And there are also things that inevitably need to change as we understand who today's kids are and what they want and need. We ultimately published any number of reports and studies that really focused on methods, relationships, and justice. And as we thought about those three frames, what does that then mean in schools, in museums, in libraries, in after-school programs, in all the places where young people learn. And I'll give you just one example. In my work at the Grable Foundation, we're privileged right now to be supporting 34 school districts from across southwestern Pennsylvania. So these districts are wrestling with things ranging from transportation policies to personalized learning to finding small little ways in classrooms that they're elevating the learning sciences that you know, really contribute to relationship building among teachers and kids. And this group of school districts represents 110,000 kids, 70,000 of whom live in poverty. And when I look at these 34 school leaders and their boards and their administrative teams and their master teachers, they give me incredible hope about what's possible when we think about innovation and justice in our school systems and start to realize some genuinely systemic changes that support our kids ultimately and their families. I love that you say methods, relationships, and justice. Because I feel like when I think justice is justice for those kids. Yes. You know, those kids who, who generations have been, uh, you know, having to deal with redlining and not having amenities in their neighborhoods, not having access. And we give access. We, we get more world leaders. We get more innovators. We get more perspective. Justice was a very specifically selected word, right? Because we can talk about diversity, equity, access, inclusion. We can talk about belonging, which is incredibly important. But when we talk about justice, justice gets to the heart of our commitment, our commitment to our, you know, our fellow citizens and our communities. So I know you've been in this industry of like education and uplifting for a while now. Um, maybe something over like 20 years or so. I'm getting old, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so after all that time, what are you most passionate about right now? I think anyone that knows me would say that phrase, Remake Learning, which is the name of this learning network that we've been privileged to cultivate over 15 years. But there are so many other places that might be those open doors that kids find their passions and interests and develop themselves, right? It might be a library. It might be a museum. It might be an out-of-school time program. It might be a mentoring relationship. 
So what are the things as communities, as cities, as states, we can do to be ever more deliberate and intentional about building out that ecosystem, about building out that landscape so that kids see themselves and their region as a, as a campus for learning. If you're lit up by art and design, or you're lit up by music, or you're lit up by engineering, or STEM, or maker-centered learning, or whatever it is that lights you up, that you can look out, and whether it's in your school or not, and ideally it is, but you can also see businesses and those out-of-school time spaces and other things that might support you and help you, and that the, the grown-ups in your life, your parents, your families, your caregivers, can see that too, and can help you take advantage of it. You know, we talk about learning pathways, there are lots of words that we use to describe similar sensibilities, but like, are we really building out the neighborhood? Are we building out these learning neighborhoods that support our kids and who they are, when they are, what they are, um, in ways that support them? And I feel like that's my life's work right now. That's amazing. And I, I love how you're saying how we need to enable these kids to be able to find their passions, be able to find what sparks them. So let's say we remodel education, remodel learning, yeah. right? And, you know, we, we give these kids all the things they need to flourish. Let's say we, we, we get our justice, we enable these folks to graduate, et cetera, yeah. right? What do you envision that future will look like, say, 10, 20 years from now? Oh, my goodness, David. I mean, it, it sounds almost... It, it sounds almost naive to say this, right? But what does any parent... What does any parent want for his or her child? Any parent wants for that child to become the best of whomever they are. We can create learning conditions that enable that. And then, and then each person is left with the agency and the responsibility, but has, the, has been given the opportunity to have that agency and that responsibility to become the best of whomever they are. I think it's the, like that should be the simple thing that drives us. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in a way, right? Right. But think about all of the ways that we hamstring and knowingly, knowingly curtail the economic opportunities for kids, fail to address injustices. Like we weigh people down with anchors that they didn't ask for, they don't deserve. And then we wonder why conditions in our communities, in our cities, in our state, in our country aren't better. But we're not making better choices, and we know how to do that. Wow. I think we hit a lot of amazing stuff today. Well, I am. I'm so grateful to you, Gabe. This is this is probably the best part of my time today, and and being in San Diego so far. So thank you. Wow, I'm yeah. I'm so glad. I'm hey, so glad, you. and thank you for coming out today. As we were wrapping up, he brought out a copy of his book and offered it to me as a gift. I felt so seen, appreciated, honored and grateful for this gift. And I was so glad for the amazing conversation we had. Our book is entitled When You Wonder Your Learning, which is taken from a song of Mr. Rogers. But that idea of learning neighborhoods grounded in justice and loving and care ideally is expressed in this and the work that I described. So, wow. Thank you. Thank you so much. Is, is your signature in here? Is that? It is not. <laughs> I mean, I can add that. I mean, I wouldn't mind that. I would be honored. <laughs> can I write for Gabe? Yes. To Ga Gabriel or Gabe? Which one? Gabriel. Gabriel? Yes. R-I-E-L.
I want to know more about you. It's like, really, just like, tell me a little bit about yourself. Wow. Okay. Let's see. What's relevant? This is Kim Smith. She's a serial social entrepreneur and a personal inspiration. Um, I'm going to go way back and say, I think it's important to who I am that my parents grew up in the rural south here in the U.S., Tennessee. And I grew up in New Jersey, where they moved, and went to school in New York City, which is where we started Teach for America. So... Hold on a second. Did I hear that right? Is she talking about that, Teach for America? That's right. She was on the founding team of Teach for America way back in the 90s. Since then, she's founded several organizations. The Bahara Institute, Bellwether Education Partners, and New Schools Venture Fund. Newsweek named her one of the women of the 21st century for her vision in education. So, pretty early in my life, I had this sensibility or this realization that we have kind of at least three different Americas, the rural, the suburban, and the urban. So the other thing I realized as I was looking at those different communities is how different the schools are, how different the life options and opportunities are. I don't know just how much of that was based on kind of the luck of where you were born. Wow. When you were starting your entrepreneurial journey, like what, what struck you about that? What did you imagine could be different? You know, it's interesting. I I worked in high school and college for a woman who specialized in business education partnerships, so like tutoring projects and adopt-a-school and stuff. And one of the things I noticed there was that the business world and the education world like spoke two different languages. So when I was in college and getting out of school and I met Wendy Kopp and we ended up starting Teach for America with a small team of us, Part of what I thought could be different was thinking about, one, how do we bring people into education? Because I saw people getting recruited for all kinds of other jobs. In the business world, they came and recruited education, not so much. But the second thing was, they told us that our generation, I'm a Gen Xer, and they told us that our generation like didn't care and didn't want to do service and didn't want to make the world a better place. and. It just didn't resonate. It didn't feel right. And so when we started TFA, we wanted to do many things, bring great teachers to young people and address the sort of inequities in the system. But one of the other pieces underneath it that we thought could be different was we need to ask people, ask young people when they get out of college to, to help make the world a better place. I mean, you guys, look at what you're doing. You're going to make the world, you are making the world a better place, right? Do you, are people telling you? Are people skeptical? Or are they saying, I don't think young people want to make the world better? Or do they get it now? Of course. There, there's always haters out there. There's always people saying like, oh, why are you doing all that? Yeah. Or like, you can't do all that. There's always people. For me, that's always motivated me. You know, I feel like that's pushed me in a lot of ways. With on textbooks, right? When I hear on textbooks, when I first heard on textbook. What came to mind and what the meaning of that is, is unlearning Mm -hmm. things that don't serve us. Yeah. Right? So, in that regard, what do you think is most important to unlearn? Mm. Well, first of all, I love that you guys are doing this, and I would just say unlearning is harder than learning. That's a lesson I've learned many times in life, so I really appreciate the way you're asking that question. We literally have to unlearn this mistaken belief that textbooks actually do have what we need to learn in them. That is, that is not true. There's a system that has led to what's in them. Um, it was an efficiency-based system to try to get a certain amount and a certain kind of information to the most young people possible. But it's not, it, it, it isn't presenting 
a full, robust story about what's happened in the world. It doesn't give multiple perspectives. It doesn't acknowledge the different contexts people are living in and different cultures. So one piece is we just have to stop pretending textbooks are the answer. And then similarly, in a weird way, like using the textbook as a metaphor, I think it takes a really long time for people to realize there is no like teacher's manual for life. The sooner we can get people used to the idea that you make a lot of judgment calls, a lot of decisions, you make a lot of choices in your life, and they're going to be interesting and complicated, and you need your peers to help you, and your family, and mentors, and elders, and unlearn the sense that there's a path we all have to be on, and it's like stable, and everyone's supposed to be on that path. Unlearn that, and then learn there's multiple pathways, and they're really interesting. This I know we went on and on. Amazing. It was so great. That's such a good conversation. conversation. I love it. <laughs> I hope you edit this down because we covered a lot. Of course, of course, we're editing this down. Are you kidding? We got we got a team behind us. We covered so, a lot of territory know. with a, a lot of noises and whatnot. But yes, don't I'm worry. So it'll sound excited. good at the end of this. I bet. <laughs> Gabe, I want to get into your thoughts about the summit, but first I want to share some big thank yous. Thank you to each of our guests who generously shared their time for an interview. Stephen Hernandez, Esther Wojcicki, David Adams, Greg Bear, and Kim Smith. You're each an inspiration. And big thanks to the History Collab and Fernanda Rain for getting us to California and speaking on a panel. So Gabe, how do you feel after attending this conference? It was amazing to see the sheer amount of people that are dedicated to making education better and thus the lives of children and adults around the world better. The entire building and hundreds of rooms were filled with these people and I'm grateful for all of them. What about you, Victor? How do you feel? I feel amazing. And I'm super grateful that we got the chance to represent young people at the conference to speak on behalf of a generation of people who are very excited to change the way that we learn education. And what hopes in education do you have after meeting with the leading shapers of the industry? I hope that we continue to look very deeply into the education system we have now and pinpoint what can be changed, what can be better, who is falling through the cracks, who is not getting the education and the adequate care that they need, I would say, to educate the youth and to educate the future leaders and people and workers and helpers around the world is to continually improve and be very focused on that. What do you think, Victor? What do you hope for the future of education? I truly hope that for the future of education, we can have young people work alongside teachers and educators collaboratively in a way that provides education in a very invaluable and yet empowering experience so that each young person not only is curious about the subjects that they are learning, but also can think about their social responsibility and the ways in which they can make the world a better place and also help others who are in need. So there is plenty more to learn out there. And there's even more to unlearn. That's all for this bonus episode of Untextbooked. I'm Victor Yi. And I'm Gabe Hostin. Join us on October 19th for a brand new season of Untextbooked. We have some exciting changes in store. Hit the follow button so you get new episodes automatically in your podcast feed. If you like the show, leave us a review. One listener wrote, I love this podcast. Super interesting and inspiring for young people like myself. Petition for more episodes. Hang tight, listeners. We'll be back soon. 
Thanks to the History Collab, Fernanda Rain and Cece Payne. Untextbook is produced by Pod People. Rachel King, Amy Machado, Danielle Roth, Hannah Pedersen, Michael Aquino, and Shay Woditz. 